Welcome everybody. This week we're in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 8, and it's the new heavens and the new earth. The world will be under new management when what is written in this chapter comes to pass. It will be a glorious time, or should I say eternity. Last week we covered the Great White Throne Judgment and the Last Battle. So I'm just going to quickly go through the chart and get the order of events and starting at the rapture of the church, and then that'll take us up to where we're going to start with today with the new heavens and new earth. So currently we are living in the church age. The prophetic event which ends the church age is called the... The rapture, very good. Okay. So when all the true believers are snatched up to meet Jesus in the clouds and then go on to be with Jesus in heaven, fulfilling John 14, 2-3, which says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. First uh, Corinthians fifteen fifty to 52 also tells us that at this time, all people who died during the church age, as well as all believers still alive at the time of the rapture, will receive their new glorified bodies. No more getting tired, no more getting sick. I'm looking forward to that. So all people from the church age, dead and alive, will be living with Jesus in heaven in our new bodies during the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation. Okay. So remember that since Jesus died and rose again, all believers go to heaven as soon as they die. Their spirit and their soul go directly to heaven and their body goes to the ground and decays. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. So to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8 And I believe the time for the rapture, when we're all snatched up and we get our resurrection bodies, is very, very close. So then there's a short period of time between the rapture and when the Antichrist is revealed. And how do we know who the Antichrist is? Yes, he confirms the treaty with Israel, a seven-year peace treaty. And the Antichrist is then permitted by God, as a part of God's plan for the ages, to rule the earth for seven years during which time God judges the earth with one plague after another getting worse and worse until the end. Then at the end of the tribulation, Jesus returns to the earth and defeats both the Antichrist and Satan and all the armies of the world gathered there. We call that the Battle of Armageddon. The Antichrist and the false prophet become the first two people to be thrown into the lake of fire. That's not something I'd like to be said about me. I'm famous because I was the first one to go in the lake of fire. (laughs) And Satan and his demons are locked up in the abyss for a thousand years. So with Satan locked up and unable to deceive the world, Jesus rules a renewed or renovated earth with a rod of iron and perfect righteousness for a thousand years. And we call that what? The millennial reign of Christ. So the church will be ruling and reigning with Jesus as kings and priests, along with the tribulation saints and the Old Testament saints. Then at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released and he deceives and gathers all those born into the millennium who refuse to accept God's gift of pardon to rebel against God one last time. So those who didn't believe, who were born in the millennium, who didn't make the choice to put their trust in God for the forgiveness of their sins, they will, when they have this opportunity, join with Satan and rebel against God. It's God giving them a choice. And those who are true believers will obviously stick with God. This is what we call the last battle or final battle. And God quickly puts an end to this with fire from heaven. Once they surround Jerusalem in Israel, then God sends down fire and just annihilates them. And they go to Hades, their spirit and soul. And very soon, straight after this, 
we have the great white throne judgment. So, the great white throne judgment is when all the dead are resurrected, all those in Hades resurrect, and they stand before the great white throne. They stand before God and they are sentenced. Now, it's interesting that before the great white throne judgment, the earth and the heavens dissolve in fervent heat, Second Peter 3, 10-12. And what we're going to do today is talk about the new heavens and the new earth. So the old heavens and the old earth dissolve. They basically disintegrate, as we'll see. And then there's the great white throne judgment, and then we have the new heavens and the new earth. So let's read Revelation 21, 1-8. It says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea or oceans. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So, before we get into it, I come across this breakup of the book of Revelation, and it's quite helpful. So in Revelation chapter 1 through the end of chapter 3, we have Jesus as the Lord of the churches, and that's the church age, basically. And then from chapter 4 through to chapter 20, the end of chapter 20, we have Jesus, the lion over the nations, Jesus judging. And then we have in Revelation 21 and 22, Jesus, the Lamb among the believers, is Him fellowshipping among us on the earth. So, in the book of Revelation, when it says, Now I saw, it means it's starting a new section. So, in chapter 21, verse 1, it starts with, Now I saw. So, this is the beginning of a new section. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. So a new heaven and a new earth. I've got a quote from David Guzik about this. You can get a bit more from the Greek. New heaven and new earth. The ancient Greek word translated new here, which is Cain, means new in character, fresh. It doesn't mean recent or new in time. This isn't just the next heaven and the next earth. This is the better heaven and better earth replacing the old. The first earth had passed away. Also in verse 1, it says there'll be no more sea. So there'll be no oceans on the new earth, which is interesting. But there will be a massive and beautiful river that will flow from God's holy city. And we'll read about that in the next chapter, chapter 22. Now, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So when did this happen? Well, we mentioned this before. Revelation 20.11 tells us that it happened just before the great white throne judgment. And it says, 
Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Now, what does it say in the Old Testament about this? Is this something that's just new in the New Testament, or does the Old Testament also speak of this? Well, actually, there's two places where it speaks of this. I'll read them both to you. Uh, the first is Isaiah 65, 17-19, and it says, For behold, I create, that word create there is bara, create out of nothing, like in Genesis 1-1. I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Maybe we just read that, didn't we? But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. So this really does parallel quite well what we read in Revelation chapter 21. And we're going to look at the New Jerusalem in detail next week. There's a massive section on the New Jerusalem. Really, really important. And Psalm 102, 25-27, it says, Long ago you laid the foundation of the earth and made the heavens with your hands. They will perish, but you remain forever. They will wear out like old clothing. You will change them like a garment and discard them, but you are always the same. You will live forever. So I like that description. You know, when you get old clothes and they get holes in them and they get you know pretty thin, you just throw them out. Well, the earth is wearing out and God's just going to throw it away. It's just like, oh yeah, I'll just make another one. <laughs> it's easy for him. Now, there's some really interesting information about the destruction of the current heavens and the earth that we are living on now, the, the earth anyway, in Second Peter 3, 10-14. So I'll just read the verses 10 to 13 first. So Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 13, it says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Anyone getting excited here? about this new heaven and new earth with righteousness dwells, we should be, because it's a promise that God has given us, and we should be looking for it. Look for, yeah? Now, I want to focus on the method that God uses to get rid of the old earth and heavens. Notice the reference there to melting with fervent heat and a great noise. Well, what happens when an atomic bomb goes off? There's a massive percussion sound wave and a great deal of energy is released in a very short period of time so where does the energy come from well within every atom there are neutrons and protons in the middle of that atom and if you've ever put two magnets together if you put the positive and positive together those push away have you ever tried that before? Yeah. So I want you to think about this. You've got positively charged neutrons all crammed together really tight in the middle of the nucleus of every atom. What is holding all those protons together and neutrons together? They're all the same, or the protons are all the same charge. They should repel each other, but they don't. So there's a massive amount of energy which is holding the nucleus of every atom together. And when scientists figured out how to split the atom, they discovered that there's a massive amount of energy holding things together. And when you split the atom, it just releases some of the energy. Now, another thing to consider here is that Colossians 1.17 tells us that in him, in Jesus, all things consist. Now, the word consist 
in the Greek language means to hold together, to combine or to put together. So when Jesus, the creator of the universe, ceases to hold everything together, then it just literally all falls apart and it releases all this energy. The ultimate atomic bomb. It's going to be a sight to behold with the entire material universe simply just disintegrating before our eyes in one massive and very loud fireball. Pretty spectacular. God releases his hold on this planet, on every atom. He stops holding the nucleuses of all these atoms together and bang, it just disintegrates. That's the power of God. Now, focusing on this word promise of the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's not some pie in the sky. Oh, that's interesting. It's actually something we need to know and think about. Because Peter goes on to say in verse 14 of Second Peter chapter 3, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. This is our motivation to live a holy life, looking forward to these things. So I'm going to spend a bit of time on this application. I'm calling it our future hope. So this application is called our future hope. It's so important to consider and meditate on the fact that this is our goal, our destiny, our eternal home, our greatest reward. The new Jerusalem is the building whose builder and maker is God. The Abraham is spoken of as looking forward to in Hebrews 11.10. All that God has in store for us is going to be infinitely glorious, beyond our wildest imagination. It's beyond our comprehension. And it's not just because of its beautiful construction, as we'll find out later. Its construction is just going to be mind-boggling. But it's because we're going to be forever in the direct presence and glory of God. So a couple of verses to consider. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We experience some of those things now, but there's a lot to come. There's a lot to come. Truly our hope lies beyond this world. This world and the lust or desires of it are passing away, as 1 John 2.17 says. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God, what? Abides forever. Okay. So if you're of the world, you're going to suffer the same fate as the world, and you will also will pass away, and you will go into the second death, the lake of fire. But he who does the will of God abides forever. That means he's at home with God forever, with God. So, Don't put your hope in this world. It's entertainment, it's human relationships, money, reputation, ambition, pleasures, success, fame, and sinful enticements. One day, they will all be gone. And I was trying to think of a good illustration, and I think, for me, the most meaningful one is when you're driving through fog, and then the sun comes up, and the fog just disappears. So for me, this world is just like a fog. (laughs) <laughs> and when when Jesus lets go, it just disintegrates into nothing. So God gave us the book of Revelation, not just to, you know, wow us with details of his plan for the future. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's how God's going to do it. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. Oh, I know that now. No. He gave us the book of Revelation to give us hope. And he's done it in what I think is three ways. So, firstly, Jesus is our risen and glorified Saviour who is reigning in heaven and is in absolute control. He is on the throne. It says in Revelation chapters 1, 4 and 5 that thrones were set up. This is like the control room of heaven. Okay, Jesus is in control. And also, we are given an expectation or something to look forward or to hope in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells and where God is. And that's chapters 21 and 22. And we're also given the knowledge and understanding that this 
dark and cruel world system will one day pass away, with God executing his divine justice on this oppressive world system. And this is our hope of victory over evil. And that ultimate fulfillment is in chapters 6 through 19, the seven-year tribulation. But you know what? God will also deliver us and execute judgment in individual lives today. And he's done that. He's doing that. So I'm going right back to the start here. When we first started the book of Revelation, who was it written to? It was written to people who were experiencing persecution. We need to come back to the main point. I don't think we've left it. Well, I hope we haven't left it. (laughs) But I want to make sure that we understand what the main point of the book of Revelation is. Between Paul's time, Paul was already being persecuted by the Roman Empire, and 325 AD, around 2 million Christians were killed by the Roman Empire. 2 million. They reckon there was about 7 million Christians during that time, and 2 million of them were killed. So that's a lot of people living in very dark times who needed hope. And today also, life isn't easy for us, with many believers around the world continuing to be persecuted and killed. However, if we embrace the vision of the glorified risen Jesus, hold on to the firm hope and expectation that God has something incredibly wonderful waiting for us just around the corner, and remember that this world system will be defeated by Jesus, it will receive its justice, then it becomes so much easier to endure the hard times, temptations and sufferings we endure now. As John says in 1 John 3.3, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. It's all about hope. Okay, I just want to point that out. It's all about hope. Revelation was written to give us hope. And so that's why I'm going through this now. We're studying Revelation because it gives us hope. Knowledge is good, but knowledge itself won't sustain you through a trial will give you the strength to overcome a temptation, but hope will. God promised that anyone who reads the words of this book will be blessed. Why? Because it gives us hope, encouragement and comfort. Where there is hope, there is strength and courage to get through any trial, even if it means being eaten by a lion in the Colosseum because you refuse to offer a pinch of incense to the emperor. A lot of people died because they refused to submit. They refused to compromise. They refused to submit to the world system. They refused to compromise their love for God. Their faithfulness to the Lord. So remember that without hope, there is only despair. But with Jesus, there is always hope. And the promise is that when we have hope, we will never be disappointed. So Romans 5, 3-5. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. If you look at 1 Corinthians 13, we have faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. They're like three sisters in my mind. They're like three sisters that always stick together. You can't have one without the others. They're linked. Our faith, hope, and love are basically one thing. Okay, They're three different things, but they're always together. My prayer is that as we go through these last two chapters of Revelation, our hearts and minds will become completely and utterly obsessed with and fixated on the glorious truths and promises of God's Word. And I was reminded of one of those beautiful hymns, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full on his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So the more we become fixated on the things of God like Abraham, looking forward to a city whose builder and maker is God, then the less we will be looking 
at this world and the flashing lights and the appealing things that Satan throws in front of us will grow strangely dim. We would have less and less attraction to those things of this world. But we'll have more and more attraction for Jesus. Now let's go on to verse 2, Revelation 21 verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So this is now the background for the New Jerusalem. This is one of the main features of chapters 21 and 22. It's the main subject, really. This is the Jerusalem of hope, this holy city, the New Jerusalem. We find that in Hebrews 12.22. In Galatians 4.26, it's described as the Jerusalem above. In Philippians 3.20, it's the place of our real citizenship. This is the, the city where we are citizens. Now, holy city. These two words are important, right? City means lots of people, true? If there's a city, it means there's lots of people. But this is a holy city, meaning a perfect community. And I was just thinking about this. This is something that has never been experienced on this earth. We experience some joy, and it is beautiful, in our fellowship amongst believers. But we have never experienced perfect community. So the joy of living in perfect community with billions of people, billions of glorified believers, I believe, will be just incredibly fulfilling and enjoyable. There's going to be so much to do, so many people to get to know. So our fellowship now among believers is but a dim reflection of the relationships that we will experience and share with every single person. <laughs> Now, there's a lot of people to get to know, but we're going to have plenty of time, so that's all good. We won't be bored in heaven, that's for sure, or on the new heavens and the new earth. In verse 2, it says, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, if you ask me what was the most beautiful sight that I'd ever seen, I would have to say that it was my bride coming down the aisle ready to meet me. On our wedding day, all dressed up. And John uses this comparison to try to describe just how beautiful the new Jerusalem will be. And we go to verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. What a beautiful promise. So first off, the tabernacle of God is with men. Think back to the Old Testament. We have Moses' tabernacle, and that represented the dwelling place of God on earth. That was a picture or type of the dwelling place of God in heaven. In contrast, this tabernacle of God is the reality of his presence. It's not a building. It's not a tent. It's God himself in the presence of his people. God is tabernacling amongst his people. The tabernacle of God is with men. It's not talking about a building. It's talking about God himself being with the people. The presence of God with people. And he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. Now, a good quote by David Guzik here, which explains the main principle here. This succinctly states the essence of God's desire and man's purpose. Simply, God's desire is to live in close fellowship with man and man's purpose is to be a people unto God. So I'll say that again. This succinctly states the essence of God's desire and man's purpose. Simply, God's desire is to live in close fellowship with man, and man's purpose is to be a people unto God. So this is how it all started off with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And because of Jesus' work on the cross, this is what it will be like again. The relationship between God and man fully restored. And if you want to know the big picture of the Bible, this is it. 
It started with God in fellowship with man. It ends with God in fellowship with man. And in the middle is how man stuffed it up and God fixed it. And that's all through the cross. So verse 3, God himself will be with them and be their God. So God himself here, we're talking God the Father. And if you go through the scriptures, you won't find any verses, I believe, talking about God the Father mingling with his creatures. It's always the second person of the Trinity or the Holy Spirit. But here we have God the Father with us. And we will have our beautiful, perfect, glorified resurrection bodies so we'll be able to fully know him, to fully perceive and communicate with him. Now, in John 3.16, we read that God the Father gave us his Son. In Luke 11.13, we read that he gave us his Spirit. And here in Revelation 21 verse 7, he gives us himself. And that's a, a quote from John Corson. So I just want to go back to the point I made before in the application about hope that we need to dwell on these things, to meditate on these things, to allow these things to become a part of us, to go down from our head to our heart. And again, I'll read 1 Corinthians 2.9. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And one of my favorite verses is 1 Corinthians 13.12. For now we see in a mirror, dimly. Back then they had a bronze mirror, which is not a very good reflection. But then, face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Again, what God is preparing for us is beyond our wildest hopes and dreams. And it won't be long, I believe, before God is going to remove all believers. Every believer is going to be suddenly snatched out of this world and changed from mortal to immortal without seeing death. Again, I do believe we are so close to that time. So be ready. How are we going to be effective in our life? Well, we need to be thinking about the things of God and this glorious new world that God is preparing for us the new heavens and the new earth, and also the millennial reign, that's going to be glorious too. Now, some people have this idea that we're going to be sitting on clouds playing harps, bored out of their brains, but hopefully by the end of this, that idea will be long gone. Heaven and the new earth is going to be exhilarating, exciting, interesting and wonderful beyond anything that we can think up. And God doesn't actually tell us much about it, and I believe the reason is we couldn't understand it. Paul went to the third heaven, the heaven where God is. And he says it's the concepts and the music and, and all the stuff that he heard there was inexpressible. It's like trying to explain the internet <laughs> to someone who's never seen a computer or never seen electricity. You know, what words do they have in their language? What concepts do they have in their culture? to explain that kind of stuff. They just don't. Okay, And it's the same thing. We don't get it because we've never seen anything like it. Okay, we just can't relate to these beautiful things that God is preparing for us. So we're looking forward to it. Verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So it says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So everything we have suffered will be healed or forgotten. I'm not sure which is true there. Maybe it's both. There will be no more painful memories. Okay, that's what it means. This is for sure. There's no more painful memories, okay, including those of loved ones who chose not to go to heaven. A lot of people ask about that. What about my deceased brother, son, daughter, husband, wife who died without knowing the Lord. It's very painful at the moment when our relatives and our friends die and they don't know the Lord. But when we get to heaven, the pain of those memories will be gone. 
all those tears we wiped away. And it says, for the former things have passed away. And just focusing on those words, for the former things have passed away, I want to talk about perspective. When we're there and we look back, this life that we lived here is like a blink of an eye. And I think that we'll be wishing we had a better perspective than we did. We tend to get so caught up with things down here, so busy, so overwhelmed, sometimes by the length of our trials, the difficult things we go through. But when we've been with God in the new heavens and new earth for a trillion years, we've only just begun. So having this eternal perspective is so important that these trials, although they feel like they're going to never end, are actually only very, very short in the light of eternity. We can handle it. God will give us the strength. And it says no more death. So think about this. In heaven and the new heavens and new earth, there's going to be no more funerals, no more cemeteries, no more undertakers, no more death. And because of this, there will be no more sorrow, no crying, and no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Remember, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire? It's all gone. Death was a result of sin. Hades was a result of death. Okay, gone. Verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Why is God making such a big deal of this? Why is he saying, hey, listen, behold, and write, for these words are true and faithful. So, first of all, behold, I make all things new. The statement is in the present tense, meaning I am making everything new. It's an ongoing action. So, at this point in the book of Revelation, this is the consummation or conclusion or finish of God's work of renewal and redemption. God begins it now, or has begun it, at the cross, and it's continuing in our present time. Consider what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 5, verse 17. I read them together. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So, some people say, well, if God loves us, why is there so much sin and bad things happening to people? Well, God allows sin and its destruction in order to do a greater work of making all things new. Did you realize that the things we go through, God is using sin, all these bad things, for good. As Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Satan means it for evil, but God uses it for good. Don't forget that. Again, at this point in Revelation, all things are new, but right now God is in the process of making us new, making things new. So this is called sanctification. The process of renewing our mind, Romans 12, 1 and 2, of being transformed into the image of Christ from glory to glory by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 3.18 from the Amplified Bible. And it says, And all of us, as with unveiled face, because we continue to behold in the word of God as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are constantly being transfigured, or metamorphosed, into his very own image in ever-increasing splendor, and from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, it's saying that we are constantly being transformed into his very own image in ever-increasing splendor, from glory to glory. And it's done by the Lord. It's the Lord who does this, not us. He's the one who's responsible for the change in us. I want to focus on the word transfigured there, the metamorphosed. And I was thinking about this, the picture of the caterpillar turning into a butterfly. 
I want to just talk about that for a bit. Before we're saved, we're like the ugly caterpillar. At this stage in Revelation, when we're with the Lord on the new heavens, new earth, we're like the beautiful butterfly. But there's a process in between. For the caterpillar to start turning into a butterfly, he has to, you know, spin his cocoon with his silk. And then he's in this cocoon. And what happens is there's a change, there's a metamorphosis, a transformation. And it's not instant. He, this caterpillar, is no longer a caterpillar, but he's also not yet a butterfly. Does that make sense? Can you see the picture? The caterpillar, once he's in that cocoon, it literally starts to disintegrate. But for our point of view, we're no longer the old person, but we're still not yet the new person completely. Does that make sense? We're still being changed. We have these two natures and God is changing our character. He's transforming us into the image of his son. So when does this process finish? When is it complete? Well, it's when we die or when we're raptured. That's when it's figuratively we burst out of the cocoon and the butterfly flies off. We are made new. Now, another interesting thought. Have you ever wondered what it would have been like if Adam had never sinned? I've wondered and wished that Adam didn't sin. But but it's better, actually, that things have happened the way they are. I'll try and explain why, using this quote from David Guzik. Our instinct is to romantically consider innocence as man's perfect state. That's the Garden of Eden and wish Adam would have never done what he did. But we fail to realize that redeemed man is greater than innocent man, and that we gain more in Jesus than we ever lost in Adam. God's perfect state is one of redemption, not innocence. So we're actually better off now than Adam was before he sinned. In verse 5 it also says, Right, for these words are true and faithful. God is telling us in no uncertain terms that what he's saying is true. And we always know that what God says is true. But he's saying, he's emphasizing the truth of these words. He wants us to remember these things. He wants us to be certain, to have a certain hope, a certain expectation that we're headed for a place where everything is new, is better, not just the next heaven, but a better heaven, yeah? A better earth. Wonderful, breathtaking. And Ephesians 2.7 tells us that every moment of our consciousness will be a moment of learning more about God's love for us. Moving on to verse 6. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. So, first of all, it is done. This is a fulfillment of Ephesians 1.10. Ephesians 1.10 says, And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. He will bring it all together. Everything will be fulfilled. All prophecy will be fulfilled exactly as written. And all there is left to do is to enjoy eternity in a new and perfect world. Verse 6, it also says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So this is a similar thing to Revelation 1, 8 and 11, and it's a clear reference to the deity of Jesus as it describes his eternal nature. He has no beginning and he has no end. He is eternal by nature. So I read a couple of snippets from Revelation 1, 8 and 11. Chapter 1, verse 8 and verse 11. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And verse 11, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And of course, in the Old Testament, the first and the last is God, Jehovah, Yahweh. 
Verse 6, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. This is a beautiful picture. Beautiful, beautiful picture. Drinking and thirst are common pictures of God's supply and man's spiritual need. Drinking is an action, but an action of receiving. Like faith, it is doing something, but it is not a merit-earning work in itself. That's from David Guzek. So there are many references to God offering to satisfy our spiritual thirst. One example is John chapter 4, where Jesus talks to the woman at the well. The main point here is that we will only find complete and eternal satisfaction and contentment, fulfillment, as we are in relationship with God. If we thirst after God, he will fill us and satisfy our thirst. But the problem is that we tend to try to quench or fulfill our spiritual thirst by thirsting after temporary worldly things. We drink the wrong drink. So I'm going to read a bit from John chapter 4. It says, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him, will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. So, a couple of things to notice. We need to ask for this living water. But when we do seek for it and earnestly desire it, it is freely given to us. We are completely satisfied as we seek God. So verse 13 of John 4 applies to all of our earthly pursuits and ambitions and desires, sinful or otherwise, when it says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. It will not satisfy. The world offers many ways to quench our spiritual thirst, but always, after we have drunk its water, we will find ourselves thirsty, meaning we will be still unsatisfied and still unfulfilled. We will be empty. The world cannot fill us. The only way to experience complete and total fulfillment is to be completely surrendered to Jesus and completely dependent on him. And a good reference there is Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, where God describes himself there as a fountain of living waters. Moving on to verse 7, in Revelation chapter 21, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Basically, it means everyone who overcomes will be God's children. Now, it says shall inherit all things. You know, if you're going to inherit something, someone's going to die, right? So this all goes back to what Jesus did. He left everything to us in his will. Romans 8.17 tells us that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. When Jesus died, he left everything to us in his will. And according to Romans 8.32, he has indeed given us all things. Now there's a extra dimension to this inheritance and John Corson brings this out nicely the inheritance here is that of a father who's sharing the family business with his son thus the inheritance spoken of incorporates not only acquisition but also administration that is in eternity there will not only be stuff to acquire but also things to do in Luke 19 Jesus says that If we're faithful in our responsibilities here on earth, we'll be given cities to rule over in the ages to come eternally. So that's another way of understanding this inheritance. It's not just getting a payout, but we inherit the role that God wants us to do. So verse 7, he who overcomes, what does overcome mean? Wow. Does this mean that we have to be successful in our Christian walk and if we slip up badly we're disqualified from going to heaven? Does it mean that we have to attain 
and maintain a certain standard of goodness to remain a child of God? Fortunately not. <laughs> Remember the gospel. What did Jesus say in John 3.16? That we need to do to receive eternal life? Just believe. And Satan loves to make us doubt our salvation. So John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So, what does the Bible say about overcoming? What does it mean to be an overcomer? Well, we have 1 John chapter 5, verses 3-5, to 5, which explains this very well. It says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, not difficult. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes, that Jesus is the Son of God. So, very simple, who is the overcomer? It's the one who was born of God, the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, in First John, it also talks about those who are born of God will not sin. And people get a bit worried about that. Well, if I'm born of God, why am I still sinning? Well, I've got a good quote from Hal Lindsay regarding this, regarding the overcomer. He says, The epistle of 1 John emphasizes that that which is born of God overcomes the world. And in other places, 1 John 3, 9 and 5, 18, it says that those born of God don't sin. So what is it talking about? I'm a believer. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but I still sin. That's why God has a bar of soap in 1 John 1, 9-10. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And he continues, So obviously it's not saying that a Christian is sinless, but it says that something that is born in us is sinless. And what is that? The new spiritual nature that is born the moment we are born again. The new nature cannot sin. It is born of God directly. So we've learnt before that we still have our old sinful nature alongside the new sinless nature. And if we yield to the old nature, we will sin. Romans 8, 5-6. But what brings us back? And there's an awesome verse in Romans 14, verse 4. It says, who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. I love that. I'll read it again. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. So the main point here, it's the Lord that makes us stand. And how does God make us stand? It's the new nature that's in every one of us who has repented of their sin and believed in Jesus as their Lord and Saviour and so has been born again. Born from above. The new nature always wants to be in fellowship with God. It will always want to do the things that please God. You see Romans 7 for that. And this is why a believer can never be happy when they're sinning. The good application for us here. Because no matter how hard we try to get away from God, a new girlfriend or an ambition or something we put our heart into, which is not of God, those things will take us off course for a while, but our new nature will start making us feel miserable. And if we don't yield to this conviction of the Spirit, as we're grieving the Spirit, then God will have to start to discipline us. And God's discipline is hard. <laughs> now, I can testify I've experienced God's discipline many times. It's humbling, painful, and very uncomfortable, but very necessary. So coming back to this whole idea about this overcomer, what does it mean? Well, we know that it's just simple belief. But how do you know if you truly believe? How do you know if you're truly saved? Right? 
So we ask the question, how do I know if I am saved? Well, there's a couple of key points here. If you aren't convicted by the Holy Spirit when you sin, if you have no desire to be in fellowship with God, if you're not experiencing the grieving of the Holy Spirit, and if you are not being disciplined by God when you continue to sin, then you had better examine yourself. Okay? Why? God's discipline is an evidence of his love for us, that we are his children, adopted into the family of God. So Hebrews 12, 5-8, And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? Okay? Remember that? Encouraging words God spoke to you as his children. When you read it, they don't sound very encouraging. <laughs> he said, My child, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes or scourges each one he accepts as his child. Verse 7, As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. That's the good news, yeah? Whoever heard of a child who was never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. That's the key point. If you're not experiencing God's discipline when you're sinning, then you're not his child. Simple as that. These verses in Hebrews are telling us that God's discipline is an evidence that we are his children and that we have been accepted as his child. Also, the conviction of sin and the feeling of grief as we grieve the Holy Spirit as we sin is further evidence that we are truly saved. So I'm saying this because a lot of people, including myself, have times in our lives where we've fallen away from the Lord, backslidden, and you wonder, well, was I really ever saved? But these two things, the discipline of the Lord and this feeling of grief and separation from God, and our desire to come back to God is the true evidence that we are saved. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you are disqualified. Literally, don't stand the test. What is the test? That Jesus Christ is in you, right? That's the test. Is Jesus Christ in you? Because we're going to read in Romans 8.16 and 8.9, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And Romans 8.9, now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. So again, these verses are saying that if God is living inside of us, then we'll be aware of his presence and we have passed the test. We have examined ourselves and we've passed the test. If not, then we haven't passed the test and we're not saved. Okay. In Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, He has identified you as His own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. So, encouraging verse there. As we sin, as a Christian, we bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way we live. But it says, remember, He has identified you as His own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. So 2 Corinthians 13.5 is telling us that if we don't experience this connection to the Holy Spirit living inside of us, then we have failed the test of being in the faith. We are not saved. We are not born again. So in summary, all true believers are overcomers because of our repentance and our faith in Jesus for salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. We know that we are true believers if we experience both the grieving of the Holy Spirit and God's divine discipline when we sin. And I have to mention here that, of course, if we're walking with the Lord, we will be experiencing a relationship with the Lord. Okay, That should be a given. We don't have to go into sin to see if we're a Christian or not. I know I'm reading the Bible most days and I'm in relationship with God. And you say, oh, how do you know that? How can you know you're in a relationship with God as you're walking with God? Well, you ask any true believer who's been walking with God for a while, and they'll be in a relationship with God, and they'll know. So here's an example of how you can know. 
If you ask me, how do you know that your wife exists? I would say, because I love her. I know that my wife is real because I'm in relationship with her. And it's the same with God. God speaks to us through his word and his spirit in our hearts. We have a relationship with him. He must exist. You can't have a relationship with someone who doesn't exist. So why have I spent time discussing this? It's because there are many false converts as a result of a false gospel, a watered-down gospel that in practice ignores sin and repentance so as to not offend people. And this gospel is unfortunately very common today. It's a gospel that says, Come to Jesus and he'll solve all your problems. You'll experience love, peace and joy. Just pray this prayer and Jesus will give you everything you need and you will go to heaven when you die. But we need to remember that Jesus said, repent and believe. So true belief is marked by a changed life, which is the evidence of genuine or true repentance. As James says in James chapter 2, verses 17 and 26, he says, Faith without works is dead. Okay. So, he who overcomes shall inherit all things, says Revelation 21 verse 7. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So the overcomer is simply someone who has genuinely repented of their sins and put their trust in Christ's sacrifice on the cross As a payment for their sins, they are born again, they are true believer, they overcome by their faith in God. Finally, verse 8, it says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, or in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This takes us back to last week, which we talked about the second death, the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 14, 15. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So basically, just to finish up, those whose nature is not changed by the second birth will remain separated from fellowship with God for eternity in the lake of fire. This is the second death. So, As a result, we have this phrase, it goes like this. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. The first birth and the first death are both physical. I am physically born into this world through my mother's womb as a child of Adam, okay? In the image of Adam. I experience physical death when my heart stops beating and my spirit and soul leave my body. Now, the second birth is described in John chapter 3. It is being born from above or of the Spirit. It is a spiritual birth. I'm born into God's family. In contrast, the second death is eternal separation from God's family. You see how they're linked? The first birth, first death is physical, into this physical world. The second birth and the second death have to do with being born or separated from God's family. If I am born again, born into God's family, I will never be separated again. Therefore, I will never experience a second death. So born twice, die once. But if I never choose to receive God's pardon, the payment and forgiveness of my sins through Jesus dying on the cross in my place, then I will remain a child of Adam with a sinful nature and my separation from God will become permanent when I am cast into the lake of fire. So, of course, we only have until we die to make that choice to follow Jesus and ask him to forgive our sins. But the Bible talks about the great white throne judgment as the sentencing, as the, like the finale. And once you go into the lake of fire, you never, ever, ever come out. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this message of hope that you've given us today. Behold, I make all things new. I wipe away all tears, no sadness, no sorrow, no crying. Behold, the old things have passed away. Well, there's so many promises in this section of Scripture, and it's only going to get better as we go through. Father, help us to really meditate on these during the week. Lord, to 
not just have an intellectual understanding of this, but Lord, that we'd meditate on this. We'd chew the cud. And these would go from our head to our heart. These would become our hope. These truths, these promises would become our hope. We'd be looking forward to these things, genuinely looking forward to these things, and therefore not be so attracted to the things of this world. Lord, our relationship with you would go stronger and stronger, and our desire for the things of this world, our love for the world, would go weaker and weaker as we are transformed slowly into that beautiful butterfly, so to speak. And we emerge from our cocoon when we die as a beautiful butterfly. Lord, help us to endure the change from the caterpillar to butterfly as you work on us and discipline us and convict us. Help us to be patient. Help us to put our trust in you that all things are working for good. We are being transformed into the image of your Son. That is the definition of all things working for good. Help us to trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.